Yeah, I'm not gonna say anything. Welcome to the stage, Dave Bachman. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John. Um, yes, my name's Dave. I'm excited to share with you guys here. This is the final piece of a three-part series um, about critical relationships. So um, I remember a few years back, I had the privilege of standing on the Great Wall of China just outside of Beijing, and I, I was so amazed by it all that I had to call the person that matters the most to me, my wife. And so I ended up, I, was, I, I picked up the phone, somehow had international service up there on the Great Wall of China, um, called her, started explaining to her that I took a ski lift up the side of this mountain to get to the top of the Great Wall of China, and then I was going to take a, a, a sky coaster down to get down it, which is actually what happens out there. And I was calling Lynette and telling her about this, and I forgot that it was three in the morning back in back in uh, Nashville. And she was so confused; she couldn't figure out how this <laughs> why I was on a ski lift on the Great Wall of China and riding a roller coaster. It was it was extremely disorienting for her, and she was just like, "Okay, okay, Dave, okay, interesting. Like what?" Um, it felt like we were on two separate planets, but we were able to break through using this you know, small handheld device and actually communicate with each other. You know, it's ironic to me that we are more connected through devices than we've ever been like at any point in world history, more connected relationally. Anytime, anywhere, we could pick up a phone, make a phone call, even do a FaceTime. And yet as a, as a society, we might be lonelier than ever having that kind of access, but still lacking um, the fruit that it's offering. You know, for the first time since some of these statistics have been recorded, those who are 24 years of age and younger, so think kind of Generation Z, are reporting to be lonelier than those 50-year-old 50 50, 50 and older. Uh, then think the boomers. Uh, this, is, this has never happened. Always the loneliest people in these, in these studies has been the older generation, and you can imagine why. But it's shifting. Um, I hang out with college students, 18 to, basically 18 to 23-year-olds, just about every day. been doing it for the last 15 years, and I'm having deep conversations with this generation that's coming up. And I've, I've, I've really witnessed the isolation increasing year after year, sort of really tangible, realistic, um, clear ways, distinguish, distinguishable ways that I've seen kind of their loneliness increasing. And guys, those of us in the body of Christ, we're not immune to any of these cultural trends. This is happening to us as well. In a sense, this series, like I said last week, is an act of resistance against a lonely and anxious way of living by moving towards intentional, transformational relationships. So this is the third message in the series about three critical relationships. We talked about the value of getting connected to a Paul or a spiritual mentor and a guide who, could come, who you could come to with your questions, bring your heart, um, bring the things going on in your life, and be met with compassion and, and the word of God and counsel into your life. I love, this, I love this verse, Proverbs 4, 7. It says, wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Connecting intentionally with a Paul, it could really feel costly at first. But you'll discover over time it's too costly not to have their wisdom and counsel in your life. We talked about the calling on our lives to invest in a Timothy or someone that we could invite to walk with us and walk alongside us with the purpose of helping them grow as a disciple of Jesus. I like this verse in Matthew 9, 36 to 38. It says, 
when he, talking about Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus, he had eyes to see the spiritual needs of people. He had a heart for isolated people who didn't have any Pauls, any shepherds in their life. And so he grabs these guys that he's discipling and investing in, and he invites them to play a role in his big vision. He encourages them just to start with prayer for more laborers. And then if you kept reading in, in Matthew chapter 10, he, basically one verse later, he sends them out as an answer to their own prayer in a sense. I love the word here for, uh, for laborers. If you look at it in the Greek, it's this word ergatis. And it just simply means common field hand, common field hand. The need is for more common people who will get out there and are willing to do the work. And that's very freeing for me, right? Jesus isn't looking for spiritual superheroes who have all the answers, have it all figured out, and don't have any more to grow in to fulfill the Great Commission. He's actually looking for common people who are willing to invest in someone like a Timothy, but notice, too, that these laborers, they have, it's, it's labor, right? It's difficult work to do. That's probably why there's so few of them, right? It's against the grain of our flesh. It's against the grain of our culture to take so much initiative into the lives of other people. And we have our own issues, right? Anyone who perseveres to make disciples will experience lots of highs and lots of lows. It is not going to be easy. And it will be easy to lose heart along the way as well, especially when things don't go sort of the ideal way that you might expect or, or hope for. And since there's only a few people doing the hard work, it will likely feel lonely at times, right? Few means there's not a lot of people doing it. The labors are few because the sacrifice is high. The calling is, is high. Most people who persevere to make disciples will not be able to do it without a team nor were they intended to. Without the, that encouragement and regular reinforcement from others, the vision is often lost. So this brings us to our third critical relationship. It's to find a Barnabas. Barnabas was a co-laborer with Paul. He was right alongside him. He was an ally with him in both life and in the mission. And hopefully by the end of this message, you'll have uh, a lot more clarity about this lesser-known figure and the critical role that he played in supporting and strengthening Paul as he experienced all kinds of challenges in his, in, his, in his pursuit of fulfilling the Great Commission. So let's explore this sort of Paul's relationship with Barnabas during this time as seen through mostly through the book of Acts. And I want to draw out three things. Um, why finding a Barnabas is critical, what a Barnabas does, and who to become as a Barnabas to others. A study recently by a former campus minister, a guy named Bob McNabb, he published, a, he published his study in a book called Spiritual Multiplication. And what it, kind of the, the, the impetus for this book was in this research was that he was disturbed by the number of people who he had experienced engaging significantly in disciple-making in their college years. Maybe they were part of a college ministry or something like that. But they were not engaged in it after college. And he wanted to know why. And so a common thought going into the study, one of the one of the ideas was that maybe, the, maybe these re new grads just needed some time to adjust to the workplace, right? That's a big transition. And maybe in a few years, they'll get back to this calling of making disciples. Well, his study didn't show that to be true. 
if they did not engage in disciple making shortly after college, they, they were, it was unlikely that they would start later. Another hypothesis before the study was that these grads, they, they maybe weren't prepared well enough to sort of make disciples in this new context, right? The college campus is unique, but after college, you, it's kind of the big bad world, right? It's the, the workplace and the community. They weren't, maybe they weren't prepared to make disciples in those new contexts. But his study actually didn't show that to be true either. Most of these campus ministries, they train people fairly well in, in sort of the basics of how to disciple other people. What the study did reveal was a simple truth that was kind of staring at us all the time, I guess, and we see it clearly in Scripture. Most people who make disciples after college are people who do it with a focused team of like-minded friends, co-laborers, Barnabases, people who meet regularly with one another to spur each other on towards this vision. And if people did not tend to find a team like this, they were unlikely to make disciples and reproduce spiritually on their own. You and I, we need allies like this, like-minded friends who are committed to the Great Commission with us. We need these people in our lives. If you look at the scriptures, it makes sense that Jesus was making disciples as he was doing it. He was putting a team together. He put this team together that could reinforce what was spoken of, reinforce the vision and the calling, especially when things got hard. It makes sense that Paul almost never went on mission alone, right? It was Paul and Barnabas. It was Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Others like Luke and John Mark and a guy named Erastus came alongside Paul as well. Finding a Barnabas, it's critical if you and I want to remain focused and, and sort of supported in this great calling that we have on our lives to make disciples of Jesus. So let's get a little bit more into who Barnabas was by looking at what a Barnabas does, okay? Um, all through the book of Acts, we see this guy pop up. And even in some of Paul's letters, we see him pop up. Um, let's start here in Acts 9, 26 to 28. So for context here, before we read this verse, Saul, sort of, Saul the zealous killer of Christ followers, okay, has just become Paul, the redeemed apostle of Jesus. A huge flip, a huge transition and transformation in his life. And the believers were scared of Paul, right? They didn't, they didn't know if they could trust this guy. And Paul needed an ally who could help him build trust with the church. This is what it says. And when he came to Jerusalem, Paul, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Paul sort of stuck his neck out for Paul. He put himself on the line for Paul. No one was there for Paul. It says he attempted to join them, and I guess that was a failed attempt until Barnabas comes along, right? Barnabas went and gets Paul, locks arms with him and says, we are doing this thing together. I will, I will lock arms with you and help you connect with, with, with the calling on your life. This is, what Barnabas, this is what a Barnabas does. A Barnabas sticks with you. They're committed to you. They're with you in it. Some of you guys are into mountain climbing. I've, I've done just a little bit of mountain climbing in my life, but you know that before you climb onto the wall or onto the rock, you say, on belay. And then the other person sort of repeats back to you, belay on. And what they're saying is, I'm connected to you. You're connected to me. I'm ready for you to go up. Um, and I, I, I'm going to hold the tension here in the line to keep you safe. I've mostly done sort of indoor 
climbing, but I've watched some of these crazy guys on TV and to see them sort of connected to each other on the side of a mountain, it's just, some of that stuff's pretty wild. I think we need to think about this intentional relationship with a Barnabas as sort of being on belay with someone, right? When two people are climbing, they're, they're attached by a rope and they're kind of saying, your fate is my fate, right? Your, my strength is your strength. When you're, when you're struggling, I can give a little more. When I'm struggling, you could probably give a little more. Where you go, I go. I'll be on belay with you. And as cool as that movie was to watch, we were not meant to climb free solo. Um, a Barnabas is really someone who sticks with you, who, who, who supports you and encourages you along the way. I'm so blessed to have people in my life who are on belay with me, committed with me. Um, one of my, one of, uh, a kind of a group of Barnabases in my life is a group of these six like-minded men that I get together with twice a year for about, for about two or three days. And we've been doing this for almost 10 years now to really encourage each other and spur each other on. Kind of some of our goals are to challenge each other, to inspire each other, to hold each other accountable. There's a couple of things that, we're, that we've identified that saying this is where we need accountability, our, just our personal love relationship, our walk with Jesus. We need, we need accountability to lead our families well, right? It's just easy to put it into cruise control and kind of fade away. And we also need accountability to labor in this calling on our lives to make disciples, to be diligent in that. And it's one of the greatest gifts of my life to have these brothers in my life who are committed to me and I to them. They were actually just in town uh, this week, Wednesday through Friday, and we had an awesome time together. Well, several years ago, me and this group of guys, we initiated what we called the nuclear option. Okay, and what this was was it, it meant that any time one of our spouses felt like we were struggling and not listening to, to our spouse, then that spouse could call any of the guys in the group and ask for us to get involved. Okay, this is the nuclear option, meaning like this is like last resort, okay? So one day I got a call from my buddy Morgan, and uh, we caught up on, the li- up on life and work a little bit together, and, and we're just kind of shooting the breeze a little bit. And at some point in the conversation, he asked me, hey, how's, your, how's marriage going? And I remember saying, you know, Morgan, marriage is going great, man. Like, Lynette and I are really connecting well these days. And before I could sort of go on more, he said, well, Dave, that's not exactly what Lynette told me when she called last week. And I had this sinking feeling in my chest, like, ugh, are you serious? Like, what is going on? Morgan went on to tell me that Lynette felt like I wasn't listening to her. And I was saying yes to too many things. And my schedule was filling up. And I was living this sort of filled and frantic life and you know, sort of repeating the same things over and over again and, and the same struggles. And she was feeling alone. She's at home raising five kids and I'm out sort of, I don't know, being the savior of the world is what it, maybe I felt pressured to do. And, um, and just he was just relaying to me how she felt. And he prayed with me, and he told me he wanted to walk with me through it, that he, he didn't think less of me, but he was going to stick with me as we processed this together. I remember hanging up the phone about an hour later, and I remember feeling this mix of like deeply convicted and deeply loved by my friend. That night, Lynette and I talked it out, and I asked for her forgiveness, and we sort of made a plan to make some changes. And I remember wondering kind of why she felt the need to enact the nuclear option, right? You know, why couldn't she just talk to me about this or whatever? And she said, she said well, I, I probably could have talked to you about it. And I had some, but I just wanted to sort of test it out and see if it worked. 
You know, a Barnabas is someone who really sticks with you. They, they, they have the hard conversations with you. They press in with you. If you know a little bit about the Paul and Barnabas relationship, you know that uh, in Acts 15, these guys actually had a pretty sharp disagreement. And what it was about was uh, John Mark, who was actually Barnabas's nephew, he had actually abandoned Paul and Barnabas on an earlier mission trip. When things got hard, it seemed like John Mark was gone. And so when, so when, uh, uh, when the chance came to bring John Mark again with Paul and Barnabas on a trip, uh, Paul didn't want to do it. But Barnabas showed this unique character about him, this quality about him. He showed it again. He said, I'm sticking with John Mark. Yes, he failed us. Yes, he, yes, he was struggling, but I'm sticking with this guy. And I love that part about Barnabas, that he, he's the kind of guy who does that. From the other books, and if you read sort of... Um, uh, Paul's other letters, it does seem like these guys all sort of patched up their disagreements in the end. Paul even asked for John Mark to come visit him um, in one of his later letters, which was really sweet. These guys stayed connected. But, um, but yeah, we, just, we see Barnabas doing this. He sticks with you. He's committed to you. A Barnabas is someone who locks arms with you, and they won't leave you. Proverbs 27, 17 says this, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You know, metals that are sharpened and sort of used for a purpose, they will naturally grow dull over time. And the only way to sharpen them or resharpen them is to use another metal to do it with, or it's, you know, different, different materials like stone-type metals. The writer of this proverb, he's telling us that people will grow dull. We will grow dull in various ways over time, and people will need other people to sharpen them so that they, they'll be more effective towards the purpose that, they're, that they were made for, that they're called, to, called for. Another characteristic of Barnabas is that they sharpen you. A Barnabas is someone who sharpens you. Barnabas was a sharpener to many. In fact, he was even given the nickname Barnabas because of this distinct part of his character. If you go back and look at Acts 4, 36 through 37, you kind of see where we first hear of this guy in the scriptures. Joseph, who was also called also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This guy was an encourager in word and deed. Significantly, the encouragement he offered mattered. In fact, it was so significant and it was actually more fitting to change the guy's name to call him encouragement. Say, so you're, like, you're just like a son of encouragement instead of his given name, Joseph. And we see him doing this all throughout the book of Acts. In Acts eleven twenty three through 24, you have the situation where the church had sort of been scattered after the persecution and the martyrdom of Stephen. It scattered out of Jerusalem, and they were sort of spreading out. And as they spread out, they were sharing the gospel as they went. And they actually were sharing with, with Jews who were, who were becoming converts, but also with Greeks. And this was kind of surprising to a lot of people in the church in, in Jerusalem. And so the, 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 the Jerusalem church sends out Barnabas to go disciple these new Greek believers and to sort of help others come to faith. This is what it says. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was in a place called Antioch, Pisidia. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. This guy couldn't help but exhort people and encourage people and build people up. 
there was a need for someone to go do this, and they thought, who, who would we send? None other than Barnabas, the son of encouragement. That's the guy who needs to go and encourage these new believers. I remember another time I was with my friend Morgan, I was talking about earlier, and we were discussing some of the deeper things of life. And I was sort of struggling with this recurring issue in my life, and I, I wasn't taking it very seriously. And I'd grown to accept it some, and you know, it's, it's just a part of me, it's who I am, I'll always struggle with this. And as I was sharing this with, with this group of guys, Morgan was the one who spoke up, and he, he must have picked up on my apathy about it. And I could tell that he wasn't going to let me get away with it. And he, I, remember the, I remember the moment, I remember exactly where we were, a little coffee shop in Colorado. And he looked me in the eye and he told me that he felt like I was playing small. He felt like I was giving in and allowing that sort of slow fade to occur in my life. And he called that out and he said, now is the time. Now is the time to sort of reject that passivity in your life, Dave, and pray and trust God to, to allow you to lead courageously into the life for the sake of my family, for the sake of my ministry, for, for, for just my, myself. And I remember having a friend do that to you. It was a bit of a jolt to me, right? I wasn't expecting it. I was looking for sort of the obligatory, like, yeah, man, that's hard. I'm, I'm sorry you're dealing with that. He was calling me to something more. And as he was sharing, sort of the fog began to clear. I began to feel some hope again. I could face this struggle with God by my side and some close friends there with me, and I could trust God to transform me. I had lost sight of that simple truth. I had, I had grown dull in this area of my life, and I needed someone to sharpen me. And I had a friend who did just that in my life. And I really think that was, a turn, that was honestly a, a, a significant turning point in my life. A Barnabas is someone who sharpens you, right? They build you up. They know you enough to tell you when you're, when you're growing dull. When you're, they even know enough to call it out when you're thriving and doing well. They love you enough to call you out. They're encouragers. They're, they're committed to you. Acts 13, 2 through 3, we get this little insight into Paul and Barnabas's relationship. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We see the Holy Spirit set Paul and Barnabas apart here, right? He was, called, he, he was calling them to go together on a journey where they were going to need each other. They're going to be by each other's side the whole time, experiencing the joys and sufferings of this journey. That's the third thing here. Barnabas is someone who serves alongside you. In Mark 6, we see Jesus, he sends out the 12 and he sends them out two by two. Later on in, in Luke 10:1, he sends out the 72 also in pairs. This seems to be God's way of fulfilling the Great Commission, sending people out to serve in these small, like-minded teams. Right, there was plenty of individual ministry going on at this time and in, 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 in their lives, but they had a team either to go with or to come back to, and that team made all the difference. Being on mission together was important because, like we said, it would get hard, and these guys faced some serious opposition right after this calling to go. Um, it must have felt really special to be called by the Holy Spirit to go on this, and then if you read the whole next chapter, it's just like, I mean, one thing after another, these guys are getting hit. Um, in Antioch, Acts 13, 49-50, it says, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited a devout woman, the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city 
stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Everywhere these guys went, it was like they would just, they would stir up a riot and their lives would be all of a sudden on the line. Later, Antonium, which is the next place that they go after this, it says this in Acts 14, 5 through 7, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Right? Every, they, now, they're, now they're discovering of plots to kill them. I mean, if you and I got a plot to kill you, I'm like, I'm hiding now. I'm not going anywhere, you know? Um, I'm getting some authorities involved that might be able to help me and support me, and I'm, I'm thinking safety, not go back out. Now, these guys did go a different direction, but it followed them. Later on, those same, that same group that, was trying to, that had this plot, they, fought, they, they actually went after them and found them in Lystra. Acts 14, 11 through 12. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Okay, I'm going to finish this story, kind of what happens in this town, but I just want to make this one little point here. This is kind of interesting. Most of us would never be mistaken for Zeus. Have you ever seen a, a like sculpture or, or like an ancient painting of Zeus, right? He's this big, strong, burly man, okay? MK. And Barnabas walks into this town like, it's Zeus! So to me, I think it's kind of funny. I think there must have been some small comfort for Paul to know that his travel buddy was this big, strong, burly man who looked like Zeus. That was just a random side point I had to make. Um, but okay, what happens? Acts 4.19. But the Jews from Antioch and Iconium... They, they came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. This happened multiple times to Paul. Um, if you read in 2 Corinthians 11, you just get this laundry list of all the hard stuff he went through. But they were not alone, right? Paul was not alone. He was on mission together with Barnabas through thick and thin. And I'm not sure, the reason, the reason I'm bringing this up and belaboring this is because I'm not sure how long you and I can, can endure hardship when we're alone, right? If there's another buddy or two with you in it, man, sometimes that's all you need to, to, to stay in the fight. But if you're alone, I mean, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure you can keep going and endure all this. After all this hardship, at the end, this, this chapter uh, ends with this, this statement. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. He goes back into the city that just stoned him. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. He goes back to all three towns where he was like, all this plot came about and people were after him. This guy's got some courage. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I don't think you get that follow-up, like concluding statement right here. I don't think you get that after so much hardship unless you have a Barnabas in your life, right? Hardship is, is reality in a broken world. Hardship is reality for those of us who are going to live our lives against the grain of this world and live for the kingdom of God. And we need a Barnabas who's going to help us walk through that and, and go the distance. There was a period several years ago where I was feeling lonely for a Barnabas in my life. And I, I could serve, I, I prayed for the Lord to bring some peers who live near me in my life who could serve alongside me in ministry as well. So 
Some of y'all know I'm, I work full-time as a campus minister. Well, God answered my prayer right away, but it actually took three years for me to realize it. I'll explain that later in just a minute, but uh, about three years into this prayer, again, I was praying for God to bring me um, a peer, right? Somebody could really be with me. And I think it's so funny. You know who God brought into my life? I have a friend named Jonathan Peer who moved to town three years later, and he joined me in the work I'm doing. I just think that's funny. Jonathan Peer, that's his last name. I was praying for a peer. And my name is David. His name is Jonathan. Do you know like the most, one of the most intimate like friendships in, in all of the scriptures that we see is this relationship between David and Jonathan? I think that's so cool. Well, this past February, I was leading some college students through some content that was going to require me to be very vulnerable with them. We were actually talking about uh, how to identify core lies that we started believing at a young age and how that affects us in the present now, things in the past that have affected the present. And it's very deep stuff. And in order to communicate that, that well and to really connect with people, it was going to require me to share about a lot of the pain and the hurt in my life. And I've led through this stuff before. I remember feeling pretty lonely afterward, like, ugh, like kind of a vulnerability hangover. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where it's like, did I share too much? Like, I was, you know, are they, what are they going to do with that information I just gave them? I hope, I hope they can be trusted. Yeah, so knowing that this seminar was coming up, I, I remember calling my buddy Jonathan and said, would you be with me in this meeting? Yeah, sure, Dave. You know, is there anything I need to do and prepare? No, no, no. I, I just want you to be with me in it. Just be in the room. Um, I'm going to be sharing some pretty deep stuff, and I just, I just sort of want to know there's someone in the room that I, I can just connect with and feel, and feel known by. I just wanted a buddy to be with me, right, to be present, to serve alongside me in that way, and he did. And I remember it was, it was a night and day difference in terms of um, sort of the emotional journey I, I, was, I was on as I was helping these students with that, with that material. Guys, why do we do the hard stuff in the Christian life alone? Why do we, why do we tend to do that? It's not working that well for us. And I'm, I'm beginning to grow some courage to invite people to sort of be with me when things are hard. It, it, it makes you feel a little bit weak and needy to do that. That's okay. We actually, we actually are weak and needy. We need help. We need other people in our lives. And to go back a bit to my prayer for the Lord to bring me up here to come alongside me. I said, I said that God answered that prayer right away, but it took three years for me to, to, to realize that. I look back in those three years of, of praying for sort of that shoulder-to-shoulder friend, and I realized that God had been growing my relationship with my wife in a very significant way during that time. And it was sort of like in our loneliness for outside relationships and outside peers, we were growing deeper together in our marriage and it wasn't just about connection, but it was also about sort of uh, learning to really be on mission together, to really lock arms and be, serve the Lord together. She's 100% with me in the Great Commission, reaching out to our neighbors, leading small groups, discipling our kids, discipling others. And she's like that Barnabas to me as well. I want to say this too. I know the church has struggled at times to communicate sort of dignity and purpose to uh, both married life and single life. And so I want to make sure you hear from me that marriage is not the solution to our problems, right? Jesus is. But if God does lead you to marriage, or if you're married already, I can't stress enough the importance of engaging eternal purposes together. 
How awesome is that, that you could have a partner in that together and being about something bigger than what maybe Hallmark and Home Depot are suggesting. God was showing us, Lynette and I, in those three years of waiting for prayers to be answered, that he actually wanted us to be on mission together. And I'm so grateful for that. A Barnabas is someone who serves alongside you. They get after the work with you, the Great Commission with you. They help you persevere in it to the end. Well, who do you become as a Barnabas to others? I'm not going to say a whole lot here because we've already really dis- we've, we've mostly discussed this, right? If you want someone to be a Barnabas to you, what does it look like for you to pursue being this kind of person to someone else, right? Someone who sticks with another, someone who sharpens another, someone who serves alongside another. There's a way to have a conversation that's more intentional about, um, about being a Barnabas with someone. In fact, I want to give you a few practical steps um, like I have each week on what this could look like to step out in this. First off, start praying for God to make you into a Barnabas. Ask God to help you identify a few people who could be a Barnabas to you. And then lastly, this is, this is a key piece, right? It's, I don't think this, that these relationships just happen, right? Sometimes you, you find yourself living this way, but I, I would encourage you, make plans to sort of invite or increase intentionality with your Barnabas. I don't know what that conversation is like, but it's just kind of saying, hey, I, I want to stick, I want you to know that I'm with you. I, I want to stick with you. Or I want to, I want to, uh, I wonder what it would be like for our relationship to um, sort of increase in intentionality in, in a few ways. This is the third part in a series about three critical relationships. It's critical for us to find a Paul, someone to engage with with us as a spiritual mentor and guide. It's critical for us to find a Timothy, someone to invest in spiritually and fulfill the Great Commission. It's also critical for us to find a Barnabas. In fact, this Barnabas role might be the most important piece if we want to continue living out the Great Commission. Someone to intentionally walk with and serve alongside in ministry. I've really enjoyed sharing these messages with you guys. I think this stuff is what Lynette and I are are very passionate about. We'd love to talk more with anyone who wants to process this more or think about this more or, or get into it some. As we close this series, I do want to give you a little bit of time on your own to consider these relationships. Okay, what does this look like in your life? Who are some of the people who might be able to fill these roles in your life? The band's going to come back up and play a little bit. I, I, if you have anything to write on or, anything, or pull out your phone if you want to, um, maybe you want to use this little chart that I had up there earlier, just to kind of draw a circle and just fill in around Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy some names of current people or potential people who could be a Paul, Barnabas, or Timothy with you. Yeah, before we just sort of move along into the next, into the next thing, I'd love to give you all some space just to sit before the Lord and, and to think, who are these people in my life and what could this look like? Maybe if you can't think of anyone, it's just, a, it's just you write down a question or like a um, a next step for you. Who can I talk to that can help me get connected with someone like this? So take a minute to do that, and then we'll go on into our last song. Thanks, guys.